0: Those important things, like the top of the mountain, for all the really great things that God has given us the Bible for, is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by knowing Him, filtered through the lens of knowing Him, and if the scriptures are what He uses to do that in you, uh, then just do the math problem in your head. uh, Going and chasing after Him, and the scriptures are exactly the best thing you could be doing. So if you don't have a Bible, take that one home. It'll be the best part of my day. It's a good day otherwise, but that'll still be the best part of my day. All right, so like I mentioned before, uh, th- today is a little complicated. Uh, it's a little bit different than the normal. Uh, rather than me spending the next 40 minutes talking about uh, one text of scripture, uh, we're breaking our time into kind of three distinct sections. And so uh, my task today my task this morning is to give a charge directly to the two men that we're about to install as elders. And so just right here. I'm going to stare at him a lot, all right? And Les is right there. I'm going to stare at him a lot. So what does that mean for the rest of you? Well, it means this, I ain't talking to you. That's what it means. I, I ain't talking to you. But here's what you can do. You can eavesdrop. And you should eavesdrop, all right? Uh, at the end of the day, the same exact way that a church is responsible for raising up its leaders, a church is just as responsible for holding its leaders accountable to the things that God has called its leaders to do, all right? And so if you don't know what those things are, you're the problem, all right? And so I'm going to talk to them, but you need to like eavesdrop, listen in, all right, so that you can like know what they're supposed to do. Does that sound good? All right, now Jeff, Les, what is it exactly that God says that church leaders are responsible for? Do you know? I mean, it seems like an important question to answer right now. We've been talking for a number of months uh, about who elders are. We've, we preached through the book of Titus together. We held the, the qualifications of Titus up next to the qualifications of First Timothy. We compared those two and contrasted those two. Uh, we, had, uh, we heard uh, Peter's thoughts about it just a moment ago when Paul read 1 uh, Peter 5. All right? Who elders are has an incredibly clear biblical answer. Right? They are men of character. Men of character. The Bible Bible doesn't say to raise up men with a specific list of skill sets and capacity for leadership, though those things could obviously be used in, in godly ways and for God's glory. The Bible doesn't say to raise up men with a specific level of education or training, though, again, that could honestly genuinely be used for God's glory and the church is good. Nor does the Bible say that a church ought to raise up men with charisma and a healthy dose and sense of calling, right? Though. Those things could be leveraged for godly purposes just as well. Now the Bible is crystal, crystal clear. It says raise up men of character. Men of character. Men of spiritual maturity. Why? Well because with character, all of those other things, good or bad, all of those other things, they can be grown in. They can be cultivated. They can even be excused in their absence for a while until we work on some other things. But without character all those other things are actually a giant problem. Without character, all those other things can be just as easily used as a weapon for terrible purpose. See, we, we spent a lot of time in our church family over the last several months dealing with the who question. And our church has, I think, wisely and prayerfully come to this moment, this morning, ready and willing to raise the two of you up in this way because, because they rightly see the character that's in you. They see it. I see it. And because we have now made it to this moment, I think we can actually answer the what question through the right lens. So what do elders do? Well, Paul answers that question for us in the very last thing we believe he wrote in the New Testament, Second Timothy. Just like 1 Timothy and just like in his letter to Titus, Paul's the old guy giving wisdom to the young guy, the grizzled vet uh, trying to explain how the game actually works to the rookie. All right? That's kind of the sense in, the, in, in all these letters. And in, and in chapter four of 2 Timothy, speaking to Timothy, Paul says this in verse one. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach The word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill the your ministry. So, Paul's been a little bit on the emotional side of things throughout this letter, but uh, he, he, he kind of turns a corner in chapter 4. He, he turns the emotional volume knob up to 11. He knows he's about to die. He, he knows that this is probably the last opportunity he's going to have to speak good things into Timothy's life and into his future. Uh, things aren't certain yet. He's still calling Timothy to come visit him at the end of the letter, but he's saying, hurry up because I don't have long right? And so uh, it, it's, it's not looking good for Paul. And in the very beginning of chapter four, he, he turns that emotional volume up. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. That's a big old sentence, right? So forget about any ambition, you know, personal ambition you might have. Forget about the list of adoring faithful who think that you're the best leader ever and are so excited for you this morning. Forget about the probably longer list of those who could only be accurately described as your critic. Paul says that when it comes to measuring your success, there's there's only one judge that actually matters. He describes that judge in what we would call eschatological terms. He says that the judge, this judge, will be Jesus. The, and He will judge the living and the dead by his appearing and the appearing of his kingdom, meaning that when Jesus comes back onto the scene, all the other wannabe judges on this world will learn their place. They'll understand immediately where they rank on that judging pecking order. Now, that does not mean It does not mean that personal ambition is intrinsically evil. Ambition can drive godly things just as easily as it can drive not godly things. It's precisely that righteous and godly ambition that has placed you in this moment this morning. You said yes. Ambition can be a good thing. In addition to that, the steady encouragement of the faithful, letting you know that you're doing a good job every once in a while, it's going to be a good day for you. (laughs) There will be days... That God breathes life into you by putting a kind word in the mouth of one of his people. Period. That would be some of the best days. After that, the critics in your life are often an invaluable, I think, God given tool for keeping you humble and, and helping you grow in all the places that rightly deserve criticism. You got blind spots. I don't know if you're aware of that. And by God's grace, sometimes it's the critic that helps you see them earthly judges of success can be a good thing, but there's quickly coming a day with a capital D where those judges will no longer matter in the slightest. And on that day, Jeff, Les, on that day, the one who judges the living and the dead, he will see you as faithful or he will see you as something less than that. Does that sound weighty? I think it ought to sound weighty. So, The obvious next question is what functional thing can you be chasing after to pursue faithfulness, right? Well, Paul said it as clearly as it can be said. Gentlemen, preach the word. Preach the word. Which word? God's word. Okay, but how much of it? All of it. The whole counsel of it. Two verses before this text that we just read, Paul told Timothy in a lot of detail that all Scripture, every ounce of it, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. People, God's people, need every jot and tittle of this book, if you want to say it that way. Okay, cool, yeah, uh, but when? Right? Like, like is that like an all the time thing? Paul's answer is yes. In season and out of season. Meaning, when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. When it comes easy to you and when it doesn't come so easy to you. When your audience is excited to hear God's word and especially when your audience has no desire at all to hear God's word. Give them the word. Be an unceasing herald of the scriptures, Paul says. Constantly point others to it like their lives and their eternities actually depend upon it because guess what? It kind of does. Gentlemen, from this moment forward, from this moment forward, there's to never ever be a time when the faithful teaching and preaching of the word is the second most important thing on your ministry to-do list. It's always primary. Are there a bunch of other really important things that church leaders have to handle and deal with? Of course there are. Some of those things come naturally with the territory of being in the top tier of organizational leadership. There's a lot of nuts to tighten and bolts to to fasten and all these kinds of things. Some of those things on the to-do list can only accurately be described as other duties as required. But according to the Apostle Paul... In an emotional letter to a young elder he loved more than just about anybody we've ever seen him love, your character and spiritual maturity channeled toward the faithful handling of the word for the good of everyone else is the measuring stick. Not a measuring stick. It is the measuring stick that Jesus will use to judge whether he sees you as a faithful leader or an unfaithful leader. You will not be chiefly judged by how well you nailed all the other duties as required. So while many of those other things rightly bring a layer of importance to the table, only one thing will ever be primary. Okay. So like, what, what do you do with the word then? I mean, does preaching really mean preach? Yeah, oftentimes it does. Oftentimes it very much does. This means that Y'all getting preaching reps on a regular basis is not just giving me a weekend off, though I appreciate it. No, it's to provide a platform for the entire church to benefit from, that, from the role that God has specifically placed you in called You to Fulfill. Our, our church will be made stronger and healthier by you using the unique and faithful preaching voice that God is giving specifically to you. Your personalities and speaking abilities are very different than mine. And they're very, very different from each other. All right? And that is by God's good design. He will use those distinctions, use those differences for our good and ultimately for His glory. But see, according to Paul here though, I think he's got far, far more than just a pulpit ministry in view. He says that your job is to faithfully handle the word by reproving, rebuking, and exhorting others. Now, we happen to live in a culture that I think would struggle to define the nuance between those three terms. All right, Um, So let me take a moment and spell them out. To reprove, it's the first one on the list. To reprove is to call negative things exactly what they are. Just nail it down. The Greek there carries the idea of exposing and rightly convicting something. When handled faithfully, God's word will cut right through all of the faulty presuppositions and value systems of this world. Cuts through it like butter. Even though people try to desperately cling to those value systems, desperately cling to those faulty presuppositions, the word cuts right through it. But here's the thing. Your wisdom... Your stage presence and speaking ability, they can't do that. But God's word can. To rebuke is to warn and correct, usually in a forceful way. Not some kind of punitive thing, but as, a, as an incredible act of love for someone because <laughs> who's chasing after what, the, what cannot satisfy them. Your intellect, your cleverness, your ability to craft a coherent argument you can't, you can't do anything with that. You can't tear those things apart, but God's Word can. To exhort, though, is the most fun. It means to encourage, to build someone up and breathe good things into them. Your compassion, I've seen it in both of you, you got a lot of it. Your tenderness and carefulness of tone are ultimately insufficient. But God's Word isn't. It has all the compassion you need. It has all the care you need. See, at the end of the day, you are not called to faithfully preach, not just called to faithfully preach the word. The truth is that you're also, I think, totally dependent upon the word to do anything of actual value in this place. What you bring to the table is good. but What you bring to the table is not enough without God's word. Your success as an elder begins and ends with the word of God. You have no hope of doing what God is calling you to do without clinging to the word of God. Okay, so you got the calling. You got the methodology. So that means that everybody should just be like, like raring to go and super excited and ready to commit to your faithful leadership under the word, right? Is that how the world works? Everybody else in here is going, yeah, let's go, Jeff and Les. <laughs> no. Because Paul keeps writing. Not only does Paul say that you were to preach the word with patience, but in verse 3, he carries that argument further. He goes on to say that people have a nasty habit in this world of running away from sound teaching. That instead, they will gather for themselves, quote-unquote, teachers that tell them what they already wanted to hear. Jeff and Les, I can tell you by experience that the hardest days of ministry will not be the days when you tried to build something awesome and it fell apart at your feet. Those days are certainly hard, no doubt about it, but they will not be the hardest days. No, the hardest days of ministries, uh, ministry will be the ones where you watch someone cling to teachers and teaching that rob them of eternal joy. That'll break your heart on those days cling to things that rob them of the glory of God and the good things that God wants for them. And despite your faithful reproving and despite your faithful rebuking and despite your faithful exhorting, they pull further and further and further away from the truth. Those days will be the ones that you look back on and call the painful ones. I wish I could tell you I hadn't walked through that myself, but it's true. But two things can be true at the same time. The first truth is that those moments are genuinely painful. It is good and right to go pouring yourself out to pursue the errant sheep. That's what you've been called to do. That's what I've been called to do. But here, the apostle Paul, as clearly as he intends this morning, the second true thing is that while all of those days are genuinely painful, those days are also not on you. They were coming anyways. While it's not your job, or while it is your job to pursue the sheep. It's not your job to keep the sheep. That's Jesus' job. Your job is a humble and urgent faithfulness to give them the word. That word will come with a thousand different nuanced postures behind it. Sometimes it will need to be as gentle as a hug, and sometimes it will need to be dropped like an atom bomb. But when navigated with faithfulness in view, the results that the word produces are always above your pay grade. Let God's word do God's work. He's using you, but he doesn't need you. And so Paul comes back to that lofty charge in verse five. Look at it again. It says, As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Gentlemen, sometimes the days will be long and sometimes the days will be very, very easy. Sometimes the days will be filled with celebration after celebration of all that God is doing and sometimes you will honestly lose count of how many days in a row you've just been slogging through trying to be faithful. In case you missed it, the command is right there in black and white. You will also sometimes have to endure suffering because of what God has called you to do. On occasion, not all the time, certainly, but on occasion, faithfulness sometimes means getting kicked around a little bit. Don't let anybody try to tell you otherwise. <laughs> okay, but what is the reward, though? Like, you point to negative examples, but what, why, why would we ever jump wholeheartedly into this? What's the reward? What has God promised to those who find their rest and their satisfaction in him as they walk in the calling he's placed upon them? Like, can we trust, in addition to uh, all the better, more celebrated moments of, on this side of eternity that is elder ministry, can we also trust that the well-done, good, and faithful servant will be entirely worth it when it comes? I think, I think maybe we can trust that. Can we trust that getting to play this slightly more prominent role in the kingdom that he's building for himself is sufficient reward in and of itself? And the longer I get to play this role, the more and more convinced I am that, oh, that's really, really true. And my prayer for you this morning is that God will continue to strengthen you in exactly the same ways. Good days and bad days, but always giving you himself and promising infinitely more in the future. Here's the hang-up, though. As in all things involving faithfulness, you got to commit to the promise before you see the payoff. That's not always easy to do. So, gentlemen, how do we get there? Paul answered our question already. Preach the word let it do its work watch God do what God will do when you walk in faithfulness and in doing so I'm convinced that God will give you all of these good things let's pray father thank you for these men thank you for the charge thank you for your word it's bigger than us more effectual than us and eternal and good Yes, sometimes like the atom bomb, and yes, sometimes like the hug, but always your word for us. Help these men stand in faithfulness. Give them wisdom to figure out how the the posture behind it needs to be given. <laughs> That's bigger than us too. We're in over our heads on that one. But you give wisdom, and so we'll trust you. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Same.
1: Obey uh, your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls and will give an account for their work. Let them do this with joy and not with complaints, for this would be of no advantage to you. Do you see the three things there in that passage of Scripture? Can you pick them out? And uh, the first, of course, uh, you know, as I began to read this, Stephen asked me about the text that uh, that I would uh, share with you this morning. I selected this text, and then the, the deeper I got into it, the more I regretted this text. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so I, I went into the, uh, the commentaries for some help, uh, and you know what? Uh, I found out that they all regretted this text too. This is a very, very difficult text because it uses some words that are not, uh, you know, often in, in ancient languages there are nuances to words that, that don't come through uh, in the language, and so uh, and so, when we just look at that, uh, it can be rather difficult to accept these words until we we kind of look a little bit more deeply in, into those uh, original nuances of meaning. Uh, and so, but the first thing that Scripture tells us, and it's like Pastor Stephen says, sometimes it drops like an atom bomb, doesn't it? It really it really hits kind of directly. Uh, uh, but it says here to obey your leaders. But let me just kind of set this at ease. You know, the Bible, one verse, can't say everything about a subject. You have to take, and as Stephen said, to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. Uh, See, uh, this is not an unqualified obedience, Uh, it is always a qualified according to, to the whole counsel of Scripture. And for example, uh, for false teachers, those that, that will rise up and, and lead God's people astray, uh, are under no obligation to obey uh, leaders in the church uh, that, that mishandle and abuse and, and teach false doctrine. Uh, and for those uh, who are abusive leaders, uh, who, who love to have the preeminence and to lord it over, and they use their positions of servanthood in a very self-serving way, and their motives are completely uh, off the mark. Uh, there's another example where Scripture cautions us about not obeying that kind of uh, abusive leadership. And so all things in, in context here of the whole council of Scripture, but those who teach with uh, the character that uh, the Scripture refers to, uh, and they're teaching the Scriptures, to them we owe our obedience, Okay. Now, the word obey here that I mentioned a moment ago has this nuance. Uh, it comes from a verb that means to persuade. But in this instance, it has this, this interesting feature uh, where it's reflexive back on the subject. So uh, it is to persuade yourself uh, or to be persuaded by your leaders, okay? Uh, and it's not their opinions or, or it is what they teach. Uh, and so it goes full circle to what we've heard already today, uh, that that is paramount in their ministry to teach us uh, the the rightly divided word of truth. Uh, and so, and when they do that, we are to listen, to examine, to consider, and to be persuaded that what they say is right. And then the second thing then is that we are then therefore to submit to that. And that is the idea. Sometimes that verb is used to give up your seat to somebody else who walks in the room. And uh, we were together at a cabin in Maine just last night up in uh, uh, Naples, Maine, along uh, Sebago Lake there, along the creek River, if you know where that part of Maine is. And uh, we were sitting around the campfire and just enjoying uh, some marshmallows and some s'mores and uh, we, we had our little Adirondack chairs and uh, my daughter had no place to sit. And, and so I got up and said here Sarah you sit here. Uh, and that's the same, that word is used, this word submit is used in that kind of usage uh, in uh, the Greek New Testament uh, or in the Greek language I should say. And so it means to defer to other people, to to give them a place. Uh, and again, it's not the leaders per se, but is what they teach from the Word of God. We are to be listened to it and be persuaded by it and then uh, yield to it in our lives and, and give it place. Let it have its way in our lives. And we're to do that. But then I really want to focus on this third thing because I think it is so critical. Uh, and that it says here that we are to we are to obey. Uh, we are to, to yield. And then it says, "But and they are the, these are the ones who watch over our soul and they give an account for that. James tells us that they are going to be judged much more harshly for what they say. Do you realize that? And one reason is because when, when uh, most of us speak to other people, we do it on an individual basis. And if we lead somebody astray... Well, we've led somebody astray. That's hard enough as it is. But when you have a a large group of the people of God and you lead them astray, the consequences are far more dire, and thus they are judged far more harshly uh, for their words. And so, But anyway, they give an account for their watching over our souls. But the Scripture says here, to obey them, to yield to them, not to them per se, but to the word that they preach but let them do it, church members, with joy and not with grief. There's always a few that that make you do it with grief. There always is, and I believe that God allows that uh, for the pastor and the elder's own good, uh, because it keeps us on our knees. uh, It keeps us uh, uh, examining ourselves to see if there's some truth to that criticism, uh, and all of that is good, and God uses that uh, to shape us, and nobody beyond uh, criticism but that can really get under a leader's skin and that needs to be balanced with uh, doing things with joy your job their job is to faithfully teach you the word of truth and your job is to obey it to yield to it and to allow them to do that ministry to carry it out with joy how do you do that how do you do that? There's a couple of scriptures I want just, to just quickly touch on. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians, we won't turn there, but he says that he appeals to the people of the church at Philippi, make my joy complete. There's nothing left that, that, that I lack, that I desire, that I haven't uh, experienced in terms of joy. Make it totally, just fill it all the way up, my cup of joy, by doing what? Having one mind, having one love, being in one accord, and with one purpose. He, he talks about this unity in those four different descriptors, but they all point to just this, this deep, widespread unity among the people of God. Break it down real quickly to be of one mind. We think the same thing. We're on the same page doctrinally. We believe those essential core beliefs of the church, and we hold them together. We think the same thing. We love the same thing. We love it when people come to know Christ. We love it. I mean, it just, it just gives us goosebumps, and we just go home so excited when people uh, are baptized and, and they share their testimony, and, and that just gets us so excited. We love the same things. And then he goes this another level deeper when he says, being of one accord. It literally means having the same soul. It's not just a superficial kind of academic, you know, we're on the same page. But we are just so unified that it just goes right to the very core of our souls. We are together. And then having one purpose. I remember we experienced that here at Nashua Baptist Church a number of years ago. When I first became pastor here, that would be uh, 15, almost, almost 16 years ago. And, uh, and I gathered together our church leaders, uh, and I said, uh, brothers, what is the next big thing, challenging thing that God would have Nashua Baptist Church to do? And I put that question out there. Les, you were one of those. Brothers, do you remember that question? Where's Les said, uh, Do you remember that question? I'm not lying to these folks. He said yes. <laughs> and uh, John, do you remember that question? You see there? And, and I said, what is the next big thing? It's always been just a great church. It's been one of the finest churches in all of New England. And, and, uh, but, but, you know, we can't rest on our laurels. We need to look forward and not always looking backwards and, and uh, to be fruitful for God. And, and one by one by one, it was almost as if there was some kind of collusion. But there was no collusion among them. But they all thought the same thing. And they all were united in purpose. And they said, we've got to build. We've got to enlarge this building. And uh, they, every one of them, it was a unanimity all across the board. Each one said the same thing. And, they, and the church got together behind that, united in one purpose. And I tell you, we had struggles. Uh, we had financial struggles. God brought us uh, 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 Clyde uh, Nivens over here and Lena. And, uh, and they led the way, and there was just, but there was this excitement. But I want to talk to you. That is what makes a church leader lead with joy when the people of God are together in such a, a deep, deep soul-rooted unity, all right? One of the great Bible commentators, Barnes, said this about this kind of unity, probably There is no single thing so much insisted on in the New Testament as the importance of harmony among Christians. That is an incredible statement. Probably there is no single thing so much insisted on in the New Testament as the importance of harmony among Christians. It says now, that is in the present time, there is an almost... There is almost nothing so little known or rare. But if it prevailed, the world would soon be converted to God. A church becomes a powerhouse for the kingdom of Christ when the people of God walk together in unity. How good and pleasant it is when the people of God dwell together in unity. And when you will do that, You will cause your leaders to do their ministry with joy. And then secondly, because that's what it says. Paul said, make my joy complete by being in unity. Secondly, uh, the apostle John said this about joy. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children do what? You know that scripture? Then my children walk in truth. I have no greater joy. This side of heaven, for your church leaders, there's nothing that, that brings them greater joy than to see the people of God who've come to Christ through their preaching and through their example and through their prayers and their encouragement, and they begin to grow and they've been faithful, and a decade later, they're still faithful. That brings them joy. Paul, the Apostle Paul says that you are my crown and rejoicing on that day. Uh, that's where their joy comes from. I was looking out here just a little while ago and I saw uh, a woman. She knows exactly who she is. It was on an Easter Sunday, just uh, like a week ago, but about, uh, I guess, about 15 years ago, somewhere in that range. Uh, uh, we got an email from one of the people here at the church. And uh, this woman said, She says, I received Christ today at Nashua Baptist Church. I was so excited about that. And then she said something. She said, it was during the the song service. (laughs) Not during the preaching, but during the worship. I was still excited. I was still excited. And do you know that was over a decade ago, and that woman is still here today. And do you know who she is? Raise your hand, Barbara Souza. There she is right there. And I want you to know that brings me. Joy. That brings me joy. But you know, Stephen said something. How infrequently do those who lead you receive notes of encouragement saying, thank you for that word you preach. That helped me to grow. The that, that, that insight helped me and, and it gave me some, some direction and, and, uh, and I thank you for that. That brings them joy. You know, you cannot make ministry easier. Ministry is hard. I've been preaching for 40 years, and do you know it never gets any easier? It never does. If you do it right, it's life and death. It's blood, sweat, and tears. And, and you can't make it easy. It can be discouraging. It can be lonely. It can be incredibly frustrating. Uh, it, can, it can be exhausting. And it is all of those things. And you cannot change that. But your job is to counterbalance that by making it joyful. There's a big, big difference between being tired of the ministry and being tired in the ministry. You know? And you cannot make it any easier, but you can counterbalance the weight that these leaders bear as they faithfully preach the Word of God to you, uh, rightly discerning the Word of truth and doing that exegesis and praying for you and watching over your souls. And that is heavy work. And that is particularly true here in New England where the soil is so hard. We're not down south in the Bible Belt. Uh, This is is hard soil here. and This is a difficult place to to be effective in ministry. But your job is to to understand that and balance those difficulties by making uh, those who serve you as leaders do it with joy. Obey them, yield to them, submit to the teaching of the Word of God through their ministry, and find ways to help them carry out their ministry with joy. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for uh, the people of God here at Nashua Baptist Church, for, for Jeff and for Les, for Marilyn and, and Nikki. And Lord, we just pray that we as the people of God would, would obey the Word that they preach, that we would yield to it in our lives and be conformed by it into the image of Christ and that we would all do our parts, that they would carry out that great work with joy in Jesus' name.
0: If I could get the Duncans and the Musters to come forward, please. So, as a Baptist church, yeah, come and grab these seats here. Um, as a Baptist church, we, we believe that the congregation is, are, are the ones who ultimately hold the authority um, to, to do the things that God calls his people to do. And so one of the ways that we can show honor and show how much we love and show how much uh, we are going to be chasing after their joy is to pray for them now, but to do so in a special way. And so if you are a church member, somebody who's formerly a member of our church, um, and you're willing and able, we'd love for you to come forward in this moment, lay hands on them in whatever way you can get here. Um, And then we're going to pray for them. Let's let's do that now. If you're not a church member, love you, glad you're here. Don't you want to be a part of this time next time? As you arrive, get and spend a couple of moments just praying for them in your little group, and then I'll close this out together. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their wives, the families that they lead and love and leverage to serve here. As we've heard today, ministry can be hard. In fact, it's bigger than us in every way. But you equip those whom you have called. And we know that nothing effectual happens with us laying hands and praying on them today but we do know that we want to we want these men and their wives to understand how deeply we love them how committed we are to doing all the things that Sam mentioned God we need help to be faithful even as they need help to lead but you are good and you are over all things and when when we chase after faithfulness and when we chase after unity oh uh, i think think your kingdom is built up and it's for our own good. God, give them strength. Give them wisdom. Give them maybe some creativity once in a while. Give them patience. Give them yourself. Thank you for today. Thank you for giving us yourself too. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you return to your seats, uh, we're going to close our time with one more song. But let me say this. This has been a Sunday full of leadership talk. Maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus yet. That would be a shame to walk away without knowing him. So let me share the gospel with you real quick. The Bible teaches that all people by default are separated relationally from God because of our sin. And that because of that sin, we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. The Bible calls it God's wrath or sometimes call it hell or death. It's owed to us. It's the right wages of sin. But God is rich in mercy and he loves us with a great love. And even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, God makes us alive by his grace through Christ. The Son of God came. He lived a sinless life that I can't live and you can't live. He died on the cross as a substitute Uh, in your place to pay the penalty that you owe. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. Listen, maybe you're here today and you've never dealt with the news of what Jesus has done. He calls you to uh, repent of your sin and turn to him as Savior and Lord. And I'd love to help you with that. Maybe you need to respond in some kind of way today, whether that's... um, joining our church or coming forward to saying, you know what, I need to do what Jesus told me to do and be baptized, or maybe it's to meet Jesus today. I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. But let's stand and sing as well.